Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This week on Catch and Shoot 2.0, we've reached the conference finals in the NBA, and everyone had the Hawks and Bucks and Clippers' sons in the final four, right? Speaking of the Suns, we do a deep dive on the team and their surprising campaign, plus their matchup with the Clips. We'll do that with someone who follows them every single night and also happens to be a Hall of Famer. But first, let's get to it. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. His partner is Otto Strong, a man who's covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas? Welcome to Catch and Shoot 2.0. I am Aaron Berlin, along with my partner. He is the one. He is the only. His name is Otto Strong. Otto, we got a great weekend of NBA basketball. Two game sevens. Two of them. What'd you think? Uh, well, I was outside working on my free throws. Uh, so <laughs> you do the underhand free throw, the overhead free throw, or the Ben Simmons free throw, which is clearly a miss. Well, <laughs> there's another th- free throw that I I just I just actually practice them, and it Ooh. goes in. It's it's a novel concept. If you go to the gym and you practice it, they sometimes they go in. I don't crazy, right? Oh my what, god! What was what was worse? Watching some of the free throws in the um in the game against the Sixers and the Hawks were watching Giannis airball a free throw. Well, I, I, I do love the fact that the, the, the Brooklyn fans would count to, to 10. I mean, a quick count, but they would you know, count to 10. And I thought what would be great or what, what will be great uh, or what would have been great if Philly, if Philly made it because the Atlanta fans are just too nice to do this. But, you know, can the Philly fans count to 10? I mean, that's, that's, that's something I've always wondered, you know, but – we love you, Philly. We love you, Philly. We really do. But uh, okay. no. But, but but in all seriousness, I mean, the I think the most painful thing that I saw was Ben Simmons under the basket, not wanting to dunk the ball because he thought that it was going to be fouled, and you know all of that. That was that was painful. Absolutely, and so that's that's a problem for the Sixers moving forward, right? Because we talked about this off air a little bit. That's not a skill problem. That's not a repetition problem. That's someone's got the yips, you know, and I, I followed, I worked in baseball for a long, long time. And the second a player can't make a throw, the second a player overthinks, you know, if it's something as simple as stepping off and throwing a second, right? And the second you start thinking about that throw, you're going to airmail that throw to center field every single time. And that's almost what this seems like for Ben Simmons. And regardless of how good you are and regardless of what your talent level is, if there's something blocking you and our, our audio only listeners won't be able to see this because I'm, I'm doing this, I'm pointing to my head. If there's something blocking you mentally, then it becomes very hard to get past that regardless of how much work you do. So crazy story that has nothing to do with the NBA, but everything to do with the yips. 
uh, Yankee second baseman back in the day, Chuck, well, back in my day, Chuck Knobloch. Chuck Knobloch, yeah. Okay. He is a classic example of someone who had the yips. Okay, he, right. He threw a ball, went to the stands, hit a fan, or hit somebody in the stands who I presume was a fan. Uh, Keith Olbermann's mom was the fan who got hit by the ball. No way. Way, way happened. Yeah, Newsday, you can check it there. You can, you, you can go back, check the archive. But yes, that happened. But all right, so yes. Um, I, and that, that, to your point, um, you know, you're right. It is much tougher than saying, here's a ball, take some shots. You know, it's like you're trying to deconstruct whatever happens in that guy's brain. And that is not an easy thing to undo. I mean, look, I, I mean, you probably heard some of the same shows that I heard, you know, this morning. Um, and that is like, you know, Ben Simmons probably has his Greyhound ticket and he's already left town. I mean, like that, that that's, that's the sentiment. He gone, he's gone. Um, which I find really interesting as opposed to saying like, Hey, can we figure this out? Can we, I mean, although there's a part of me is like, this should have been figured out a long time ago, but yeah. I mean, I mean, we've had this same conversation about his, um, and, and not necessarily to this degree. Like it's never been that people are asking and people are shouting at the rooftop to see a sports psychologist, right? Like yeah, that was yeah. the trend on Twitter last night. And look, someone has to make that decision to do that on their own. That's not something that needs to be screened from the rooftops on a social platform by someone who's got an avatar as an egg, right? Like that's, that's a Ben Sim- Simmons conversation. That's his personal life. He decides what he goes from here. I'm, I'm not here to tell him what to do with his life or how to proceed as a professional basketball player, because you know why? Because he's making $33 million a year and he's reached the pinnacle of the NBA and he's earned that right. Right. But for you're, you're right. It was very telling in the aftermath of the conversations, both with doc and I thought Joel Embiid both had conversations in their post-game press conferences that, that usually after losses like that, you, you don't hear, right? Like someone asked Doc if he thought Ben Simmons could be a championship caliber point guard. Yep. The immediate response to that from any coach typically is, absolutely. We right. have faith in Ben Simmons. Yep. You know, we're invested in him. We're going to figure this out over the summer, and we're going to come back stronger and better, right? Like, like that's yep. the coach speech. That's what you say. Joel Embiid, basically – reiterating the entire sequence of what we've talked about of him giving up the ball underneath the basket on a play that should easily be a dunk for him because he didn't want to be fouled. That's the cracks in the armor and the wrinkle in the fabric that is probably going to be the undoing of this Sixers squad. And I, so we've had this conversation a lot too, right? I love this Sixers team. I've thought for years they've had untapped potential and I was hopeful that Doc could get them there. Now it seems like there's no way out but to replace Ben Simmons. Because Joel Embiid's not going anywhere. You're not trading that guy. He loves that city. He's everything to that team. But on the other side, how do you trade Ben Simmons with his contract? What team takes him? after that because any team who's looking to take ben simmons is a team that has playoff aspirations right that's looking for that next piece or that last piece of the puzzle to make an nba final and 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 maybe the key thing is they have a guy or somebody who they feel can get to ben simmons and can unlock that problem or that that, whatever, whatever is holding them back i mean that that's that if i thought i could i could solve that i'd take him in a heartbeat but if I didn't think that I, that I could get there with him, then, then he's, he's toxic to me and I'm not touching him. 
Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's worth noting that Doc did say they thought that they could fix it over the summer, right? Because that's the proper thing to say. But it was more telling in the aftermath that he didn't yeah. necessarily go there. Yeah, look, I mean, I, th- I think there's, there's certainly a, a fair amount of frustration that, that you, because look, it wasn't just game seven. You know, um, it was We've game talked five. about this with him for the last few years and in the NBA playoffs. Right, right. You know, but, but game five had, had, I mean, had problems there. You know, so, Otto, we've had conversations about him just taking a three in a game. That it was amazing that he decided to take a three. Yeah, yeah. This is an NBA player. Like, it, it shouldn't, and this is someone who's the point guard of your team. Like, we're going to have a conversation with um, Ann Myers Drysdale about the Suns, right? And about CP3 and what he means to that team as their point guard, as their leader. And if you're the point guard, you can't be having these types of conversations because you are the floor general of that team. I think, and that's probably the harder thing is that they drafted Ben Simmons with the idea that he was going to be that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've, they've had some misses along the way with their drafts with whether it was Markel Fultz or whatever. We don't need to go down that hole can of worms with what has been the process right but mm-hmm. they chose those two guys to invest heavily in Simmons and Embiid one's worked out well the other one's been really good at times um and Simmons but has had obvious question marks and then just you know the, the whole debacle with um Jimmy Butler and then over overpaying for Tobias Harris there's been question moves along the way so it's not just this one thing but this is probably the undoing of the Sixers, right? Uh, I would agree. I would agree. Uh, but, but let's let's do this. I want to pivot here. Your Hawks, Trey Young. <laughs> I mean, the Trey Young coming, like the dude is just balling out of control, and it seems like the bigger you know, the bigger the, the, the you know, the hotter the spotlight, the the bigger he shows up. But do you I know mean, what was wild in last night's game? He probably played his worst game yeah, in the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, and, and but yeah, but then when it mattered the most. He started knocking down shots and you know in, in making shots for other people and um, but yeah I mean it it was brutal it was, I think it was like two of fourteen or two of eighteen or something yeah, like that so not- so I'm looking at his numbers right now forty three minutes five of twenty three two of eleven from three twenty one points plus seven in the box but I, I mean the numbers at half were awful yeah the Hawks were. still led and then you knew once the fourth quarter came that he was going to figure it out that he was going to make some plays and. This this is a Hawks team that it, it's kind of like the Suns a, a little bit, right? Like nobody thought the Suns, regardless of how good they were in the regular season, were going to be in the Western Conference Finals. You know, I, I, I said this two weeks ago on this show. I wrote them off when they played the Lakers. I thought the Lakers were going to run away with that series eventually. Didn't yeah, happen. I had yeah. it on my face. Yeah, but. no, same here. I, I, thought, I thought that the you know, Lakers would, would kind of – figure it out. Although I did say that if there's ever a time to play the Lakers, it would be in the first round. You, you did know, say that before they, before they kind of figured it out. It, it's, you know, the, the, the injury obviously caught, I don't, you know, the injury to, to Davis clearly to, to me cost him the series. Um, and maybe that's not fair to, to, to sons, you know, fans or to, to Anna or, or the, or the Phoenix faithful. But I mean, I, I think, it, you know, you definitely have to agree at a, at a minimum, it would be a completely different series if AD was healthy. Now, whether it runs, runs, winds up the same way, I don't know, but I mean, they just seem to be, you know, rolling right now. Um, and, you know, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see what happens if they, uh, if they get Kawhi back, if Chris Ball clears, clears protocol, you know, what, what that all looks like. But, uh, but they, look, they look tight and ready to go. Yeah, they're raring to go. It's, it's going to be a fun Western Conference Finals. Uh, real quick, before we wrap things up in the East, 
it would be awful if we didn't mention what happened with the Bucks and Nets. You, all right. So it was so funny after this happens, right? Bucks Nets go to OT after KD hits that ridiculous shot, right? That yeah. looked like it was a three, but people resurfaced this article that that the Athletic published. I think it was maybe a year or two ago about the way that KD wears his shoes in a basketball game, right? Uh, he's a size 17, wears a size 18 shoe when he plays so that he has a little bit more mobility and he's a little more agile, right? And it turns out that's the thing that bites him. So, so here's the, I mean, I know it's like cool to say if he only wore a smaller shoe size. Yeah, if he only wore a small shoe size, he would have gotten his, shoe blo- his shot blocked because he'd been like two inches shorter. But, but, but here's the thing. When, when you're moving, you're, I mean, I, I know you're, you know, if you're looking at the line, you're going to, you're going to put your toes down somewhere, but you know, you're planting your heel and then, and then the, the front of your foot is, it lands where it lands. Like, I'm not, I, I don't know. I, I, it, it's, it's a kind of a cool argument to make a little bit, but I think in that moment, you know, you need a three. I mean, look, he's, it's muscle memory for him. You know, he's, he's done this, what, literally a thousand times. Well, that, that's, that's what I was going to say. For anyone yeah. who's never been to an NBA shoot-around or who's never been to an NBA practice or yeah. watched kind of like their pregame routine, these guys take hundreds of shots a day. Yeah, yeah. Like, like yeah it's, he knows the spot that he needs to be in for that shot. Like you said, it's muscle memory. It's yeah. just, I know I come off this screen. This is where mm-hmm. I'm going to be. This is where the look's going to go. And this is, how, this is my form. This is how I'm going to shoot it. And it's just one of those moments in, in a big game that for whatever the reason, you know, maybe he inched up a little bit closer yeah. than he typically yeah. does, yeah. you know, and yeah. it just, it just happened to bite him in that instance. But regardless, despite that, they still had another five minutes left to go in overtime that they could have gotten this done. Oh, absolutely. It didn't happen. You know, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't, I can't even, um, I would think I was throwing stuff at the set at that, by that point because I was like, what's going on here? Like, if you told me the only bucket was going to come, <laughs> Oh my God. Anyway. um, Okay. Real real quick question. And we can wrap this up and and throw, and throw to our interview. Do we see this Nets team back like this next year? Spencer Dinwiddie's already said that he's going to, he's going to test free agency and see what's out there for him. He's been a big part of that team, but do we see this big three back next year? I would, I would say so. I mean, I don't don't see why not. I mean, it's like if, if, um, if KD is two inches back, then, then, you know, then the world is completely different. I mean, no, you know, the, the team, uh, you know, they were, they were down, I will, I'll say a man and a half because, you know, Kyrie is the man and, and you were playing with Harden was playing on, on one and a half legs. I mean, he just wasn't, you know, completely himself. And it was amazing how much he was able to do, um, you know, con- considering the injury. Uh, so yeah, he, I, he struggled that first game back, but you know, he powered through it the next one. Powered through it is not the same as being, you know, like ready to ready to go and ready. And like, every, yes, everyone's hurt, everyone's de- you know banged up, dinged up come playoff time. But he wasn't, you know, I don't think he was even on that level. I think he was, you know, a, a tick or two below that. So I don't, I don't see the need to to, to blow it up because they didn't, you know, they didn't, uh, you know, get farther than they should have. I mean, they should have gotten farther, but sometimes things happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough when you're playing a good team and you're playing against an MVP level or a caliber player. And like you said you're down a guy and a half messes up your rotations. And I think uh, with the extended off season this year with players not racing back um, and with KD having another year under a mat away from the injury, 
this Nets team's going to come back. They're going to be healthy and they're going to be ready to go. But Nets aren't in the conference finals. You want to talk about one team that is? Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's head to the Valley of the Sun. All right, it is my pleasure to welcome in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer. She is also the vice president for both the Phoenix Suns and the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury, as well as the color analyst for both teams on Valley Sports Arizona. She is the great Ann Myers-Drysdale. First off, Ann, can you have any more jobs? And secondly, <laughs> thank you for taking the time and joining us. Well, thanks, Aaron and Otto. I look forward to the uh, interview and I'm very fortunate to be with Phoenix, uh, with the Mercury and the Suns. I've enjoyed my time there tremendously. So how has this ride with the Suns been this year? It's been great. I mean, certainly I got there in 2007 as the general manager for the Phoenix Mercury, which uh, we were able to win a couple WNBA championships. And then they moved me over to the broadcasting and we won another one in 2014. And so Mike D'Antoni was the coach at the time and uh, Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire and that group. But then, uh, you know, Devin Booker's had about six different coaches during that time. And uh, James Jones came in and certainly the executive of the year this year in the NBA, but he came in and, and made some changes, a great relationship with Robert Sarver, our owner, and, uh, and certainly Monty Williams coming in. Um, just that relationship that they all have. Uh, you really see it, and it, it plays out into the players, and certainly James and Monty going out to get uh, Chris Paul, who wanted to come to Phoenix, as Jay Crowder did. And uh, those two players, I think, were huge, and certainly the maturation of DeAndre Ayton and Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson, and uh, certainly D-Book has just, uh, you know, had a tremendous year. So going into this year, a lot of us felt really good. Um, we really did. We didn't know that we would have the second-best record in the league, but, uh, we're not surprised by it either. And what could you tell us about, we've heard so many great stories about Chris Paul and, and his leadership and, and how his, um, I, I don't want to use this word, but I'm going to infectious. I know this is probably the wrong year to use that word, but just the way that he kind of um, can, can mobilize and get a whole team to, to become something greater than, than themselves. Can you talk, is there anything you could share about uh, things that we might not know about Chris Paul or any, any kind of uh, anecdote about, about that? I don't know if I can, Otto, honestly, because, you know, he has said it himself. He talks about it in the interviews, and Monty Williams has talked about it, and all the other teammates have talked about it. But, you know, it's unfortunate that with COVID, uh, it really separated a lot of, you know, us broadcasters from going to practices and being able to interact one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Certainly, we get the... Uh, the Zoom calls, the Zoom interviews with all the players and the coaches and so forth. But, you know, you only get so much. But absolutely, you just can feel it uh, when we're broadcasting the games and we're seeing out on the court, we're seeing the, the warm-ups and so forth and, and how the coaches are working with the players and just the feel that they all have for each other. Um, you know, they, a lot of them have talked about Chris Paul. All he does is talk. He never stops talking. He never stops talking. And uh, certainly the relationship that he and Monty Williams have from uh, back in New Orleans is huge and then um just his leadership again everywhere he's gone he's won uh, uh but this is a group that is it's really come together and i know that he has really worked hard with uh, deandre ayton as far as the pick and roll is concerned and where he needs to be on defense and just controlling that back uh end of the where the basket is and so forth but you know the the just the information that chris paul gives to everybody and his knowledge 
at 36 years old. I know we keep talking LeBron and so forth, but, you know, Chris Paul and what he's achieved. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of the, the guys that are in 35 and older, um, but Chris Paul playing the position he plays and uh, the, the demand on his body, uh, certainly he takes a beating. There's no question. But there is just such a positive atmosphere and, uh, and a happy-go-lucky atmosphere, too. But don't take away about, uh, from the intensity and the will to win because they are as competitive as anybody. And, and I really think, too, Otto and Aaron, that um, the Phoenix Suns have kind of been overlooked all year long and even going into the playoffs. Uh, we're the underdog. People still can't buy into how good we really are. Um, Book getting a, a triple-double last night, it shows you he's been doing it. And uh, yes, it's the first time in the playoffs, but he's been doing it throughout his career. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and well, sorry, not to cut you off, Otto, but that's something that Otto and I have talked about on this show a few different times is, you know, even with that first round series against the Lakers, for whatever reason it was, it felt like um, with, regardless of how good the Suns look, that people were still saying that the Lakers were going to take that series. And, and I'll admit it. I thought the Lakers were going to take that series. I, I'm not ashamed of it, but it, it showed to speak to what you're talking about, the toughness, the maturity, and the evolution of this Phoenix Suns team. And I think a lot of that, it has to do with CP3, but it also has to do with, with Devin Booker. And, you know, can you take us back to when the Suns were evaluating Devin Booker and what that process looked like? Because this was a player that was on a really deep Kentucky team, didn't get a lot of run, but you guys saw something in him that I don't think a lot of teams initially saw. No, and he, and he didn't start. He was a sixth player and uh, very young. At 18, he came into the league, and we had Goran Dragic, and uh, I think we had Bledsoe at the time. I think we had um, uh, Knight, or Brendan Knight. Uh, not Brendan. Is that right, Brendan? Yeah. <laughs> We've had so many different guards throughout the, the years, but um, we had solid backcourt and everything. But, uh, you know, he sat and learned, and, and certainly, as I said, he came and uh, played for a lot of different coaches. Uh, I know he had a great relationship with uh, Kobe Bryant. Uh, he's very close to his dad. His dad has been a, a very much a mentor to his mental approach to the game, both his mom and dad. And uh, I, there was a, a game uh, a few years ago. I happened to be calling the game, I think. Uh, maybe it was Eddie, Eddie Johnson. But um, he got uh, the second technical. Book got a second technical. And I think we were on the road. He, walk, he was walking off the court. And somebody asked him for his autograph, and he's smiling. He sat and signed the autograph. So, I mean, he understands what the fans are about. He understands that, you know, giving back to the community, which he's promised $2.5 million into the community with different nonprofits. And uh, so he gets it. But he's very intense as far as playing. He takes his game very seriously. He's worked on it. The year that he had was about two or three years ago. He, he hurt his right hand. So that time he spent using his left hand. So as, as good as he is, I mean, he really goes to his left quite a bit and can shoot with it in his ball handling. Um, so, you know, he works on his game. P.J. Tucker was with the team uh, early on, and I know P.J. Tucker toughened him up. And uh, just different guys, veterans that have come along and, and helped him along the way. But I know, again, Kobe Bryant, and he really had a good relationship, which Kobe did with a lot of the guys. And uh, – but – you know, for whatever reason, they really click. And if you look at his game, uh, he's probably the most in this league right now that plays like Kobe skill-wise. And we had a, a, an exciting game one. Obviously, the Suns took that. We had no Chris Paul for game one, no Kawhi Leonard on the other side for game one. Where, what, are, what are you looking for in terms of game two? Where do you, how do you see the break coming down? 
Well, you know, certainly the, the Clippers are going to make adjustments. I mean, they just came off a seven-game series. And, uh, you know, Paul George is amazing. Uh, the, some of the shots that any of these guys make is just mm-hmm. crazy. But, um, you know, I, I think with Jackson and, and Beverly coming off the bench and, and Rondo, uh, you've got a good backcourt with the, the uh, Clippers. And I thought that, you know, Boogie came in. Boogie really changed uh, the game a little bit. You know, he scored those 11 points, and, and he's so physical and big and strong. So, uh, But we made adjustments, too. Uh, I think the fact that we've played in different styles and, and Chris Paul uh, being the leader that he is as far as understanding what kind of pace we need to play. and uh, But he's passed that on to the other players too, uh, Devin Booker. And we know when to run. And certainly we're, we're a pretty good team when we run mm-hmm. and can fast break and, uh, and not bad. I mean, even if you look at Chris Paul as far as uh, his steals at 35, 36 this year, I mean, he's still coming up with steals. And he may not get the steal, but he'll create it. Uh, which Mikhail Bridges has been one of the top guys since he's been in this league in his third year uh, with steals. And uh, we had a key one at the end of the game. Um, certainly, uh, I think that, um, you know, the other players really feed off Chris Paul. But uh, I, certainly, as I said, Clippers are going to make adjustments. I think Ty Lue's done a terrific job, you know, going small ball. Uh, in the last series, and I think that that really affected uh, in the Jazz, and yeah. uh, and it really took uh, Gobert out of the game quite a mm-hmm. bit. So um, you know, and then of course uh, uh, Donovan Mitchell, you know, hurt his ankle, and and Mike Conley was in and out of the lineup because of his injury and didn't play. I think the first three games, or you know, so forth. So you know, and injuries were part of the game, uh, but. I think the Clippers probably didn't have enough time to adjust. And I think fatigue's going to be a factor uh, to benefit for the the Suns. You know, and uh, you've spoken about toughness, and the Suns team alludes to that. I I mean, I can't think of a more difficult situation to have to overcome than to lose your point guard like Chris Paul because of protocol issues and then rebound the way that they did in game one. Can you give us an update on CP3? What I mean, obviously you might not know his status at this time, but you know, more of an update on where he's at and then kind of how the team responded to that news initially and how they picked themselves up. Well, we don't know the status and we won't find out um, until later. But uh, in saying that, you know, Monty Williams has preached the, the system all year long. And uh, certainly Chris Paul has been at the head of that and running it. But uh, he's missed two games. One, I think he sat out with an ankle. And then the other one that uh, Monty sat him to get him, you know, just give him rest. But as much as he wants to play, you can tell that the other players understand what they're supposed to be doing. Chris Paul talks to these guys all the time, uh, whether they're on the court or off the court. And that's the benefit that this team is such a team. You can tell that they all get along. And so when they came out of the bubble last year, 8 no. You know, there was such a, a happiness, a friendliness. It reminds me a lot of a high school team. You know, these guys hang out all the time. They're laughing, and uh, it's a basketball game. They're having fun playing a game that they love. And uh, Chris Paul certainly inspires that. And it's you've got a bunch of young guys, and, and Jake Crowder, who's a veteran. Uh, Frank Kaminsky, I think, coming off the bench, he really helped us during his stretch when uh, uh, DeAndre was out. And uh, But everybody has really contributed. Dario. And, and the other guards, and, and uh, when Cam Johnson's been out, uh, somebody else has stepped up. And so, you know, we've really had a, a great group of guys that have accepted their roles, and they're going to come in and play as hard as they can, as many minutes as they get. Nobody's been unhappy. Nobody has created any, you know, uh, 
words to the, the uh, media. And there is such a sense of this, th this team is a family. They're tight. They are together and whatever happens is going to stay with them. And, uh, but, you know, when, when Chris Paul gets on DeAndre Ayton, for example, or, or Book gets on Ayton, um, there's no animosity. It's a teaching moment for all of them. And uh, but they're all they're all hanging together, and uh, you know it's so much fun to see a team like that. And it reminded me of the first year that I got to Phoenix when uh, Steve Nash and and D'Antoni uh, was a coach, and um, that team was so much fun. They're you know they're doing squirt guns at each other, and they're just I mean everybody's laughing and having a good time and loving playing the game of basketball, and uh, and that's what this team has been. Has Chris Paul been zooming with the team at all? I'm sorry. Has Chris Paul been Zooming with the team at all? I'm unbeknownst to us. <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me. And I, I, I definitely feel your, where you're coming from with regard to the whole, the whole team uh, chemistry, you know, live thing they, they got going on. I Personally, like Jay Crowder uh, being – I was someone who, who said, let's say, was not a Boston guy. So <laughs> anytime I used to see Jay Crowder, I was like, ah. But I really – I mean, I've really come to appreciate what, you know, what he brings – um, and I was also thinking it back to a story that I heard some time ago, and it's maybe an old story for you, but for, for some folks who are listening to us and may not follow the Suns as closely, uh, that Monty in his earlier years was not the kind of guy who, let's say, would want to, you know, get as much input from players like a Chris Paul. And so one of the things that, that you know, for just putting out there for everybody to know that uh, Monty has become more accepting, obviously, in this, you know, his, uh, uh, as he's evolved in, in, in his role and kind of taking more input from guys like Chris uh, and, and you definitely could see, could definitely could see that and feel that. Um, so I, I'm kind of backing up everything you're, you're saying there. And uh, I, I just, I just think it's great. I'm wondering what you feel the team needs to do to kind of push it all the way and get to the NBA finals. Well, first of all, Monty's grown and he'll tell you that. And uh, you know, as, as a young coach, he's put in a position where he's given the job and uh, he probably didn't have as much experience and, and his life experience has changed him tremendously. Uh, losing his wife and, um, you know, and raising his five kids, but getting remarried. And, you know, I, I mean, just, you know, Coach Wooden at UCLA used to talk about balance mm -hmm. and uh, balance in your life uh, is so important, whether you're, whatever you're doing uh, professionally or and so forth. But, um, you know, the balance in, in Monty's life has been created by, you know, going to San Antonio, being under Pop and seeing how he coaches and then being pushed out of San Antonio by pop to go to Portland and learn under Nate and uh, Nate McMillan and gives you a different perspective, not just in the game itself, but in life and how you treat people. And then, you know, he's been in so many different situations. We went to USA basketball with, uh, with Jerry Colangelo and Mike Tuszewski and, you know, Mike D'Antoni and, and pop and so forth. So you've got all these different coaches and, and Tebow. I mean, he talks about Tebow and uh, his relationship and, and, and Michael in, in uh, Denver and just, I mean, all these different guys that you, it's a definitely a fraternity and you learn from everybody, but he was such a young guy that he was taking all these things from everybody. But, you know, the relationship that he and Chris Paul have that, and he said it after the game that, um, you know, when they won and, and going into the, the final four now, but uh, that, you know, he and Chris Paul have been through a lot together. And uh, during that time that he lost his wife, it was very difficult. But, you know, Chris Paul, which I'm sure a lot of other people stepped up and uh, were there for Monty. But, um, you know, if you saw Phoenix play this year and when you see him on a daily basis, uh, we beat a lot of good teams this year. And so what is it going to take to, 
you know, get to the finals and, and win a championship, they'll keep doing the same things they're doing. Uh, certainly they'll raise it to a different level. And as you know, when you're in a series, you're always making adjustments uh, from game to game. But uh, I, I think that, again, we're the underdogs. And, and even the Lakers, I remember doing the Lakers uh, towards the end of the season, and you heard all this snipping back and forth, and uh, Kuzma was not happy, and Anthony was this, and LeBron saying this. And so there were a lot of things flying around in L.A. that players weren't happy, and it was being shown on the court. And uh, so to me, you, you have an edge when you're an opponent, and you can go against a team that's uh, not always together. But I will tell you, Phoenix is always together. Yeah, and it's really seemed that way. And and you brought you brought up two really big points in NBA circles. You know, one was Popovich and his tutelage with some of his assistant coaches. Another was the situation that's going on in Portland where they're kind of looking for their new next head coach. It was reported today that Becky Hammond, one of Pop's um, assistant coaches, you know, she's been there, I think now five years, and she's been in the running for a couple of head coaching jobs over the last few years, that she's among the group or list of finalists. Do you think it happens this year where we get a female head coach in the NBA? Aaron, I, it's going to happen. There's no question. Uh, Charles Barkley talked about it last night, too, on air. He said, how can you have 30 teams and only seven black coaches? And when you're told, and Kenny Smith said, yeah, when you've got a, a Hall of Famer in, uh, in Patrick Ewing, and he had an unbelievable career in New York, and then you're telling me that he can't be a head coach, he's got to sit on the bench for how many years? and doesn't get the opportunity, and, but he's at Georgetown as a head coach now. So, you know, you're looking at not only race, but you're looking at gender, too. And uh, it'll happen. It'll have to happen with a, a team that has uh, got a general manager and an owner that is very, very supportive of a, a woman being in there. And, uh, and if they do poorly, are you going to fire them right away? I mean, you may not have, you may be going to a team that really isn't that, that, that strong. So are you going to give them a chance? But, you know, I talked to, uh, talked to several coaches in the league and, uh, you know, if you don't get fired, doesn't mean you're not going to get hired again, you know, and, uh, and that's the nature of the game in the NBA. But, but in saying that, is Becky Hammond going to be the first? Is she, because that's what the media knows because she was in San Antonio with Pop? Or is it going to be a Don Staley? Or is it going to be a Carol Lawson? Or is it going to be a Denny Busick, who's been in Dallas for a long time, too, under uh, Rick Carlisle? So, you know, there's a lot of women out there that are with NBA teams. And uh, whether that GM and that, that owner can take what the media is going to say, they're going to be critical no matter what. It's just, it's, it's how it is. And, and so that person has to be strong and, uh, and accept what social media is so different today and thank goodness when I try, had my tryout with the Pacers because I, I, social media is just brutal. Well I, I, well, I was going to say, and you know, part of my thought process was, it was I was reading uh, an article in The Athletic today that basically it, it's completely off topic to what we're talking about, but it was like how NFL teams design their plays. And a lot of coaches will look to the lower levels to implement things at the higher levels. And so to bring this back and to make sense of where I'm going with this, does this need to happen at the lower levels in the college ranks or maybe in secondary leagues before, if it doesn't happen this year for the NBA to do it, to well, take that have. step? We've had some women that have coached in the G League and, and some of the men's leagues, lower leagues. And uh, certainly we've seen that on the officials. I think we've got, what, seven women officials now in the yep. NBA? But you start in the, in, the, in the G League and you start in colleges and you start in the WNBA and to try and work yourself up to the uh, NBA, which uh, there are 
probably about a dozen NBA officials that started in the WNBA. And, uh, but in saying that, um, yes, it just, do you work your way up? Well, I think most of the women that have been in the situations that are being talked about, they have worked their way up. They've been coaching. And it's the same concept as, as what Kenny Smith said. You know, what does it take for an athlete that has been a successful coach or a successful player to be named a coach? But it, again, it depends on the GM and the owner taking the chance and really believing in whoever that person is, whether it's, whether it's an African-American or whether it's a female. And, um, you know, it's going to be somebody that they've got to really believe in and, and promote. And uh, no matter what the media, the local media says. And, and that's the tough part because the media today, and especially social media, but the media today, they can hire you and fire you and ruin your career. And a so a couple of questions off of, off of all of this. The first is, do you feel like, and you could just be your personal opinion, do you feel like this will be kind of a, once there is one woman who becomes a head coach, like there'll be others within a short period of time. In other words, nobody wants to be the first. Is, it, is there any kind of sense or feeling like that? Or maybe, I mean, I, I don't know. Sometimes I've always felt that in, in my own life with, my, with respect to my own career at, at times, that, you know, that if I, once this happens, then, okay, then, you know, we, we're obviously not going to be waiting six decades for the second one, clearly. So I just, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. You hope. Right. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, because you can go back to the eighties and nineties that yeah. when Pat Summit was coaching right. and Tara Vanderveer at Stanford, they were talked about, Hey, let's bring them out to the men's team. Let's, let's have them coach the men's team. They are that good a coach. Right. And uh, so this is not a new thing with Becky Hammond and Carol Lawson and, and Don Staley and so many other women, Jenny Busick. And, uh, but they have been coaching. They've been coaching a long time. Katie Smith. Why not Katie mm -hmm. Smith? Right. And um, but I think that the fact that there have been women that have about, talked about uh, there have been women that have made that step, but it hasn't been talked about. Uh, I do believe that we're still in a in a, in a holding pattern where uh, whoever the first is, you know, it's going to happen where, where they'll get fired. Um, I was the first to have a tryout in the NBA and I'm still the only woman to have a tryout in the NBA. And that was back in 1979. So to say that uh, there's, will there ever be a woman in the NBA? There's so many other variables. It's not just about the X's and O's. It's not just about, you know, being able to coach. Uh, it's about your relationship and, and the trust that your players have in you. And uh, that what coaches have, the trust that your assistants have. Nancy Lieberman was in Sacramento. And uh, whether the trust was there by the head coach or not, I don't think that the relationship was great with the GM and so forth. So, you know, things kind of, you know, disintegrate a little bit. And, uh, but is this going to be the first or the last? I don't think it'll be the last, but I don't know how long it will be until again, an owner and a GM, which are usually white males. And uh, we have a few black GMs like James Jones and uh, Toronto, and, and there's a few others, but, you know, are they going to hire somebody that they're familiar with and comfortable with? Or are they going to go out on a limb again and start hiring women? You also talked about uh, the trust factor. And we know that the NBA players league. And so, you know, players often dictate, you know, what, what, hap what happens and who comes in and who stays. So you have a situation where um, the current players, you know, the younger players, the Devin Bookers, 
were basically, you know, babies in diapers when the WNBA formed. And so there, I guess where I'm going with this, I'm wondering if the younger players used to seeing the WNBA, used to seeing uh, female professional athletes as, as compared to, say, the older guard who uh, those, a lot of the, those guys are probably retired, but, but just feeling that, that a younger player, that it wouldn't be as hard to get through th- those guys now as it might have been back in the 80s when you're talking about Bad Summit. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. No, that's a great comment. And uh, certainly having something exposed. And we all talk about, you know, what happened this past summer with COVID and, you know, Black Lives Matter. And Mm -hmm. uh, so if we don't address Black Lives Matters or gay issues or abortion or or transgender or so many other different issues that are going out there with with police, you know, so forth. So if those aren't brought up, then everything stays the same. And uh, as uncomfortable as conversations can be, uh, you'd love to have a, a group of owners and in uh, general manager, general managers in a room, and have somebody like Charles who would be perfect. Then, okay, how come there's not more African American coaches? You know, right to their faces. Right. And uh, but I th- I think sometimes when it's the first, uh, the, a lot of people will say, oh well, we tried it, we tried it, and it didn't work out. And so why do it again? Mm-hmm. But um, it'll it'll take. I think a lot of people to believe in uh, whoever that person is, again, whether it's gender or, or race or religion, uh, whoever that person is, as far as are you going to take another chance, not just on that person, but somebody that is qualified. So we know since Title IX that uh, about 75, 80% of the jobs in women's and girls' sports were coached by women. Since Title IX, less than 50% of the jobs are held by women. Well, why? Because because men are applying to jobs and they know they're going to get paid and uh, they're taking the jobs away from women. Now, are women stepping up for those jobs? That's the other question. But um, to say that, why are all these men getting hired uh, to coach women? And uh, so we know that men are in the locker room on the women's side. So I, that was one of the big questions they asked me right. when I tried out with the Pacers. Where, where are you going to shower? You know, and... Uh, but we've seen if anybody's got any respect, you go into the locker room, which again, there's lots of male coaches that have been coaching women, and there's a sense of understanding what you know uh, proper etiquette is. And uh, but the the thing is, as far as another woman being hired right away, uh, whether another team is willing to go out there and go after somebody that they feel is qualified over a male, sometimes they're going to do something that's more comfortable for them. You know, and this has been a great conversation and very eye-opening for me. You know, one of the things I think. No, no, this is this is tremendous. But but where I'm going with this is, you know, the the W celebrated 25 years last year, and you talk about the league taking a chance. They took a chance on the W. You know, you were part of that first telecast 25 years ago with NBC. In your eyes. How much has the league grown? Because I see it now from a social standpoint. I see so many people, whether it's in my Twitter mentions or on my timeline in general, talking about the W and how it gains traction and how it continues to gain engagement. But if you look at the league five years, 10 years from now, how do they continue to build on the excitement that the league has now? And where do you see it going? Well, you know, the bottom line is David Stern, when he's live, and Adam Silver have both said, this is the right thing to do. And the fact that you have, you know, the interesting part for me is when I go out and speak in, at the camps and so forth and talk to college and high school girls, and I say, well, what's your favorite team? And they'll say Phoenix Suns, the, you know, Warriors or, or the Chicago Bulls, whatever. 
who's your favorite player? KD, Steph, you know, it's like, no, you want to be professional. You need to follow girls and women need to support women. And the fact that we have a league and that's why, you know, people say, well, is there going to, going to be a woman to play in the NBA? The possibility is always there. And now there's more opportunities for men because you've got the G League, you've got Europe, you've got so many other things. For the, there's so many men to compete against. And now that you do have the WNBA, uh, you've got women that are going to play in that league. But, um, yes, the league is going to be around. The hard part is that the media continues to compare the 25 years to the 75 years of the NBA. And uh, I would say that the WNBA is way ahead of the NBA in its first 25 years. The hard part for me is that there is still not a, a, a lot of respect from the media, which is mostly men. And um, for example, yesterday was the 25th anniversary, as you said, of New York playing LA. And uh, what was on TV? The Suns and Clippers, the US Open, the uh, soccer. And so when you go to Sports Center, even though ESPN is a partner, do they show any highlights? No. There's no highlights being shown. So who makes that decision for that network? Who makes the decision for your local sportscasters not to even have give you five seconds or 10 seconds worth of what the game was about? You can't find me 25 lines or space in the newspaper to put it in there. So uh, what, what's been great because of there's so many more outlets today, whether it be podcasts or whether it be, you know, the athletic and, and so many other different avenues of getting things out. And, and uh, so you do hear more about the league, but on the mainstream, you're not. And uh, I do believe that that's going to change. I do believe that there's going to be expansion. I do believe that, uh, you know, these players that are coming out are unbelievable names and great players. Uh, just the fact that the Olympic team was picked today and a lot of controversy that uh, Neko Wumike did not make the team. And uh, her sister Cheney came out and wrote an unbelievable uh, statement. And uh, Neko, who was waiting her turn, and uh, people will say, well, she was injured. Well, Diana Cross, who's been injured, and some of the other players have been hurt along the way this first part of the season. So how does Neko Wumike not make this team? And, um, but uh, it just, you know, so the, the great thing, I think, with the women's game that we've had is that we do have a conversation. Who is the greatest player? Is it Diana Trossi? Is it Lisa Leslie? Is it Lauren Jackson? Is it Cynthia Cooper? Is it Cheryl Swoops? Is it Tina Thompson? Um, you know, we've got these names now, these wonderful names that people can discuss of these players because they're, they've been recognized. You know, when I played for Carol Blaziowski, Nancy Lieberman, Lynette Woodard, and so forth, you know, the media, a lot of people didn't know who we were. But we obviously were good enough that our names are still being mentioned today. So that's a plus there. But the fact that the players are being talked about, you know, it's like, you know, LeBron or Jordan, Kobe or, you know. And so KD is the greatest player right now, or is it such and such? Steph Curry, and, and how does Devin Booker or, or not even make one of the top five in the NBA? And uh, there's so many good players, but that's the same thing in the WNBA. There's so many good players. So – so how do you get the younger kids to, 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 like you say, to change their mindset to where it's, you know, when you ask them your favorite team, well, it's the Phoenix Mercury, it's the LA Sparks, it's the New York Liberty or the Atlanta Dream. How do you change that mindset to where that's their first reaction? And, you know, a second part of my question is, 
Does it take moments like what we saw last summer where the Atlanta Dream really stood up for what they believed, what they thought were right, and they used their platform for real change within the league? Well, this is kind of a double question to answer. It's, it's exposure. So you see what happened with not only the Atlanta Dream to get somebody else to vote. You know, that was a big one, too. But the whole league was about supporting Black Lives Matter. And uh, but that's been happening before the women. The women have had the louder voice, in my opinion, than the men, for example. And this is just again, I, I'm not putting anybody down. But when the Donald Sterling thing with the L.A. Clippers and the players came out and threw their jerseys into the center of, of the court before the game, protesting Donald Sterling, I thought, that's not a protest. You've got all these fans in the, in the um, arena. A protest is not playing. And I, I'm really good friends with Bill Russell. And so Bill has told me so many stories about the 40s and 50s and 60s. And, and um, you know, Muhammad Ali and I, I know Kareem is now, they've got a, a social um, uh, award named after him and uh, with the NBA. But uh, and he just came out with a documentary and so forth. But, you know, the social issues. But, you know, Bill Russell's been involved with it for a long time, Bill, Jim Crow and so forth. So, you know, you've got to make a statement and say, we're not doing it. We're not going. We're not going to play. So the very first All-Star game in the NBA, all the players were sitting there. They hadn't gotten paid. The owners came in and said, said, why aren't you out there? Get out there. They said, no, we're not going. Pay us. You haven't paid us our salary. So okay. until they got paid, did they go out and play? And uh, so to me, the Clippers, you know, they made a statement, but they didn't really make a protest. And uh, but I thought that they did last year when when, uh, you know, Chris Paul and, and Russell Westbrook and they all stood up and said, we're not going to play this game in Milwaukee um, right. when he got shot in the back. And it just like, I mean, really, is it what is America not seeing what is happening? And but I think the women stood up what was it, three years ago and Maya Moore, Maya Moore quit playing, who was at the top of her game in this league and to really, you know, spend her time to get an unjust and innocent man out of jail. And, um, you know, but the women have always locked arms together. And maybe and? because it's not as many, it's 144, but I will tell you, it's a sisterhood. I, I definitely, I definitely agree with everything you're saying. I'm going to want to kind of just to say one more time that, it, you know, when you go back a couple of decades, the NBA finals were still on tape delay. It's like it's not like the NBA Finals were on ABC, you know, since its inception. So there is an evolution, there is a process. Not to debar the term from the Sixers. So yeah, I mean, twenty-five years, you know, strong. Um, yeah, it's it's. I th I think the league is healthy when you can have the conversation about who got snubbed from from, from an Olympic team. That's because right. that that tells you that you've got depth, that you've got opinion, that you've got a variety of viewpoints. That obviously whoever was deciding that team didn't feel that she should be on it, whether we could, we could certainly question that. And on a personal note, I want to say my first WNBA game, 1998, Phoenix, to date, the loudest game I have ever been at. Well, Cheryl so, Miller helps that. Cheryl, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. she is like a Pied Piper getting everybody into it. Yeah, that was, I mean, just, just, just the, I mean, incredible energy in the arena. I mean, it was one of the greatest sporting events. I was, you know, I was, and these guys are for, I was at the double nickel game at, at Madison Square Garden, the group next fan, but, but, and that was fine, but just in terms of like volume and, and, and energy, and it was a regular season game, mind you. 
Not yeah. not a pull out a playoff game, but anyway, I do. Agree. This this has been this has been fascinating conversation. Um, Ab, you got anything? You got anything else? I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, just to build off this, and yeah. we've done this show for a year and a half, and this is the best interview we've done, hands down. So. <laughs> We cannot thank you enough. I, I mean, to get this kind of stuff from a Hall of Famer, it's priceless. We well, appreciate, we appreciate every you moment. Know, honestly, you follow up with the NBA. And like you said, Otto, that you know, the, the game was being taped delayed. I mean, when it was Larry Bird and, mm-hmm. and Magic Johnson. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but even before that, when my brother David Myers was playing for the Bucks, he said the first, the, what, the first round was best two out of three, I think. Or, and the finals were best three out of five. Yeah. So, you know, and again, financially, money changes things. Right. So you've got the best out of seven, which that's a grind on those guys. You know, if you have to yep. play a seven-game series getting into the finals, that's that's 21 games. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of games. And uh, But, you know, this year with it being 72 games, I think was a big plus for the league. I really do. I think Adam Silver has done a tremendous job and his, his staff and working these things out. Um you know, and, and going back to what the NBA and the WNBA has been a big part of it, uh, we just had Rick Welts in uh, Phoenix and interviewed him, who's just retiring with the, the uh, Golden State Warriors, uh, their president and CEO. And, uh, you know, we, and when he was in Phoenix in 2011, he came out with a big article in The New Yorker about being the first gay executive, and uh, which was huge. And, and he said, as a 13-year-old boy, that would have never happened. And then when you've got 13-year-old girls and boys coming up to him and saying, you know, way to go, Rick, kind of thing. And uh, But even today, again, a conversation that is open uh, on the men's side. I just saw today that there was a, a football player. Yeah. That yeah. That he, yeah, openly First gay. First active NFL player. Yeah, but it, didn't the kid from um, Notre Dame, the linebacker, played at San Diego? He was openly gay, right? Uh, M- Michael Sam, a couple couple years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, but I, in terms, in terms yeah, but of, he wasn't active, right? It was well, he, he, he he he'd come up before before the, before the draft, and then I think he was drafted, but it wasn't you know, a re- regular player like in terms in terms of someone who had regular playing time and, and regularly logged, right. um, you know, uh, you know, seasons under the belt and all that. Unlike, but, but you, uh, you think know. he was he was probably the first to come out. Oh, I, there yeah. were others. There were others, yeah. but we didn't hear about it. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. But. You know, I, I just think it's a wonderful opportunity for women to be able to do something that they love just as much as men, and they work as just as hard and put in just as much time, and yet they're the ones having babies that have to take time off and have to get back into shape. And again, whether it's basketball or Allison Felix and uh, other, you know, track and field or swimming and, and uh, so many other sports, yeah. but, you know, we come back because we love the game and we have the support of the people that love us. Yeah. Very well said. And I got one more question for you. Who was the last person you played on one in one and one and what was the score? Yeah. <laughs> I did. I am played one on one in so long, Aaron, I cannot even remember. <laughs> I'll make oh. little free foot bank shots. <laughs> hey, I can't hit a shot to save my life. So use Anyone? the backboard. <laughs> no, it still doesn't help. It still doesn't. <laughs> I have this weird overhead shot and it's awful. Well, so I used Jamal to go to Wilkes. camps and people would make fun of me for it. And I'd be like, yeah, but I'll hit a free throw. Like, so did bad. Jamal Wilkes. And then you look at Rick Perry. Rick Perry, I saw him the other day at a golf tournament and it just drives him nuts not to take somebody, you know, some, some of these players that struggle to make free throws. And he said, why won't they go underhand? Why won't they go underhand? And Shaq said it. 
it's too embarrassing. Even if you make the shots, they're no, too embarrassed to shoot. Embarrassing. Out of I'm sorry to cut you off. Embarrassing is 30%. That's embarrassing. <laughs> 30% and not getting to the next round because of it. That's embarrassing. I'm right. just, just saying. But. Right. Okay. <laughs> Nothing else. Yeah. And I think we, we think we blew the stop sign uh, a few <laughs> times over, but, but thank you so much uh, for, for, for taking the time to join us. We illuminating conversation. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Otto. Thank you, Aaron. That was dope. <laughs> Special thanks to Ann Myers Drysdale for joining us. Otto, I can honestly say that wasn't lip service. That m- was the best interview that we've done on this show today, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, we 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 got to we went to a lot of areas uh, that that you know we often may think we we get to, but we don't actually sometimes get to. But we were able to kind of you know actually actually do that. So uh, hats off to to Ann and and. Uh, and to our producers for, for, for guiding us and steering us through a conversation as well. It's definitely a total team effort. So thanks to all. Absolutely. It's been a fun show so far. So we thought we'd finish it off with some fun, you know, wild NBA news and nuggets. Like some of this stuff is maybe four, five, six days old. It is what it is. We only get to talk once a week. So we're going to have fun with it regardless of when it was. But, you know, last week there were some wild and crazy stories. We had a lot of NBA head coaching moves. So I'm going to ask you, Otto, which one was the wildest for you? Which one did you think was the most lasting or impactful? And then I'll kind of give my take on which one I thought. But Mm -hmm. anyway, we had the Celtics electing to trade Kimball Walker in his contract, a first this year, a second in 2025 for Al Horford, Moses Brown, and a 2023 second. The Pelicans said, nah, no more Stan Van Gundy after one year. The Wizards and Scott Brooks agreed to part ways. And then in your town, probably the biggest news Donnie Nelson, Rick Carlisle part ways with the Mavs after a tough, tough playoff appearance. Well, all right. So uh, answer D, ding, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you win the car, you get a car. Uh, No, but I mean, like the thing about it that that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks was the fact that Mark Cuban after game seven, just like a few minutes after game seven, um, in one of the Zoom calls, uh, our, our Star Telegram columnist, we've had him on, Mac Engel, he, he asked a question uh, to Rick saying, hey, are you coming back? And, and Rick said, hey, you better, ask, you better ask Mark. So Mac did what any good journalist should do. He asked Mark. <laughs> he asked him right, right, right then and there. You got to, you know, you reach, reach out to him. You shot back. And he said, yeah, he's, he's there as long as, basically he's there as long as he wants to be. So that's what we were thinking in the hour after game seven and to think like what it was what three or four days later that, um, that, okay, that's not what's going to happen. So that, that to me was, was the, um, was the biggest surprise. Uh, and then of course the, the news that, you know, Donnie is going as well. And, you know, look, look, Donnie is the guy, the, the guy who brought Luca in. It's not like, you know, he was one of the guys, he's the guy. And so, you kind of you might want to pay a little attention to that, or you might want to fix that, and you know make sure you got that settled because Luke is not a guy that I would want to uh, have have walk on me, or I would want I would want to be the one uh, who you know it was on my watch that he walked away. But uh, but that's just me. Make, call me crazy. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's not a guy you want disgruntled as you're about ready to sign him to a supermax contract. Like right. he, you'd, you'd like him to be on good terms. Right. So, so before you respond with your, with your move, do you think that he'll sign the Supermax with the, with him? I mean, I, I do, but I'm always. Well, it, well, if he doesn't sign it this summer, he can't sign it next summer. Right. 
Like he's limited to four years if he signs it next summer. He'd be restricted and yeah, he'd be restricted next year. And so, yeah, I mean, if, if you're just playing the dollars, he's going to sign it. If they, if that's like, and, and look, they, they could, they, he could send Donnie Christmas cards. They could get together at the holidays. They could go to, you know, Antigua yeah, you know, during the yeah. off season. So they, they go to the Cinemax so and watch a movie together if they right, want they, to. They don't have right. to work together all the right, time. Right. I have friends right. uh, I still talk to that I used to work with that I don't work with anymore. Exactly. Exactly. Like, it happens. All right. So you want to know what mine was? Yes. And this is probably going to surprise you because I would say most people would say it was Brad Stevens dipping his toe in and starting to reconstruct the Celtics roster, mm-hmm. right? And some of those moves. Not for me, man. Mine was the Pelicans just giving Stan Van Gundy the boot after one year. What? Okay. So this is, this is great for me on a personal level because now I get Stan Van Gundy back in my Twitter feed, which I am incredibly <laughs> excited about because he is one of the best follows from like a basketball mind and just like a comedy perspective. So I'm very excited to have that back. But this was more of, I'm guessing that Stan Van Gundy did not have a great relationship with Zion Williamson because otherwise there's no other reason why you would bring this guy in for one year and then just wash your hands with them. Unless you're worried about that relationship. Yeah. No, that's like, like we, like we said, when we're talking to Ann, like, you know, it's it's a players dominated league, and if you if you don't have that in a relationship league, and if you don't have that, or if that you or if you feel that trust is not there, or if you feel like hey, um, our our guy may be thinking about you know leaving or something, you, you got you got to nip that in the bud. So. Yeah, and what hey, what's the main thing Annie said? You're hired to get fired, right? Like regardless, if you get hired, you're going to get fired at some point. Sometimes it just happens really fast. You don't know when it's going to happen. But at the end of the day, you still get your money in your contract. So as long as it's a long deal, not feeling bad for Stan Van Gundy because he still has his house here in Lake Mary. He's still going to hang out and he's going to enjoy his Central Florida lifestyle. But Otto, I've enjoyed this show. What do you say? Is this it? We're wrapping this up? Bow time. All right, let's do it. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. All right. First off, thanks to our Hall of Famer, Annie Myers-Drysdale, for joining us. She is the TV analyst for both the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury for giving us her thoughts on the Suns series against the Clippers and other basketball topics. And as always, a special thanks to our producer. His name is Daniel Kramer. And to our editor, Kristen Woolley. Also, big ups. He is the CCO. He is the one and only. He is the man with more hats than anyone else can count. And he is also the executive producer. His name is Bruce Bernstein. As for the rest of all that Pure Hoops Media has to offer, on the Mike Weiss Show this week, Mike has his own Hall of Famer on as Larry Brown joined the program. Brown shared his thoughts on the NBA's coaching carousel and who might end up at each of the openings. Full Court with Fisher and Kay has plenty of great college hoops talk each and every week. Monica McNutt and King McClure have buckets, boards, and blocks every Thursday. And BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman have the Pure Hoops podcast on Friday. And Otto and I are back next Tuesday with Catch and Shoot 2.0. And everybody, we are getting close to our big hope of this year, and that is that every person on the planet gets the COVID vaccine so we could finally put this pandemic to an end. But we're not there yet. So protect yourself and others by wearing a mask, washing your hands, and keeping your distance. And don't forget the medical professionals and the other frontline workers who are doing their part to keep us safe. So, for my partner Aaron Berlin, I'm Otto Strong. See you next week. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.